And we return this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians to Philippians chapter 3. Once again in Philippians chapter 3, we've said in our study of this great chapter that Paul is chiefly concerned with defining the nature of a true Christian and true Christianity in the face of the false teaching of the Judaizers who were teaching the Philippians that in order to be saved, they must also be circumcised and must also keep certain ceremonies of the the Mosaic law. Paul combats their error by giving a spiritual autobiography of sorts. As one who lived as a respected Jewish rabbi and an expert in the tenets of the religious system of Judaism, Paul was uniquely qualified to comment on the inability of the law of Moses to provide the righteousness that God requires for salvation. As one who was confronted by the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and then commissioned by him to preach his gospel of repentance and forgiveness through faith alone, Paul was also uniquely qualified to comment on the perfect sufficiency of Christ to provide that righteousness that the Mosaic law couldn't provide. And so he gives his testimony. And in verses 5 and 6, he lists out all of those religious advantages that he trusted in for righteousness before he met Christ. He says that he trusted in his orthodoxy, his pure bloodlines, his social standing, his religious traditions, his religious devotion, his sincerity and his zeal, and then even the self-righteousness that he managed to obtain by external conformity to the Mosaic law. And so he says in verse 7 that he had counted all those inherited privileges and religious achievements as gains with respect to establishing his own righteousness before God. They were listed in the assets column of his spiritual ledger book, as we've been saying. But then he goes on in verse 7 to say that those very things that he counted as gains, he had come to count as loss for the sake of Christ. The very things that he trusted in to provide him with a righteousness by which he could stand before God, he came to regard not only as worthless, but as harmful to his spiritual condition. And so he abandoned all hope in his righteousness, abandoned all hope in the religious system of Judaism and any religion of human achievement to provide his acceptance before God, and he became an outcast among his own people. He lost everything that he had. His family had disowned him and disinherited him. He forfeited the comfortable life that he knew as a respected rabbi with a high social standing and an upper-class income, and he embarked upon the life of an itinerant preacher and tent maker, enduring beatings, imprisonments, homelessness, and constant conflict, self-righteousness, money, possessions, property, reputation, comfort. Paul says in verse 8 that he suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. And yet he counts these all things as if they were no better than refuse. He says no better than garbage because of the surpassing value of what he had gained. And what's he gained? He tells us in verse 8, he's gained the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul counts everything as lost. He could lose everything that this life has to offer him. And he could call that gain because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. 
And we learned last week in verses 9 to 11 that that knowledge of Christ consists in three things, the three phases of the believer's sanctification. And he tells us in verse 9 that knowing Christ consists in tasting Christ's sufficiency and justification. He says that his life in Judaism, as he was trying to meet the standards set in the law of Moses, that could only ever get him a righteousness of his own derived from the law. But he tells us that that kind of righteousness could never satisfy God's holy standard. But the righteousness that comes as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ, that was a righteousness that could save him. In knowing Christ as his Savior, Paul could taste his sufficiency as the one who pardons all our iniquity, who provides all our righteousness, who protects us from falling, and who pleads our case before the Father. Paul never had to worry about whether or not he was good enough to earn God's favor because the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, had earned God's favor in his place. And God now freely credits that favor to him by faith alone. Knowing Christ also consists not only in tasting his sufficiency and justification, but also, we said, in experiencing Christ's fellowship and sanctification. He tells us in verse 10 that as believers experience the the sanctifying power of Christ in Christ's resurrected life, and as we progress more and more in the practical holiness of becoming more conformed to Christ's image, he tells us that in that there is a sweet communion with Christ. We get to know him better. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the, the sanctifying power of his resurrection life. And just as Christ was hated and persecuted by the world, so too his disciples, since we are going to be like him, will be hated and persecuted by the world. But even there, in that suffering, there is fellowship with Christ there. There's fellowship in his sufferings. And it's a fellowship so sweet that Paul can call that kind of suffering gain. Whatever the people of God may lose in suffering for Christ's sake, that doesn't hold a candle to the gain of experiencing Christ's fellowship as a result of that sanctifying process. And then in verse 11, he tells us that this surpassingly valuable knowledge of Christ consists also in enjoying Christ's presence in glorification. The knowledge and the the joy and the hope that we experience at at the promise of one day finally seeing Christ face to face, unhindered by sin, it's almost too much to take. The sweetness and the, the delightful communion with Christ now because of the hope of perfect communion with Christ then makes everything that we could ever lose in this life look like refuse, look like garbage. See, the law could never provide us the righteousness from God. Judaism and every other religion of human achievement could never bring us into personal communion with the living God. And no experience in this world could ever compare to to living in the presence of God himself on the new earth, free from sin and free from corruption. And so Paul says that he counts everything in his life as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And after hearing Paul enumerate all of those blessings of of a personal relationship with Christ, 
Paul anticipates that there may be some people in the Philippian congregation that have just misunderstood him, some who think in light of of all of those benefits that he just celebrated, that Paul must have somehow reached spiritual perfection, that he had been catapulted to a realm of spiritual experience where he'd ceased sinning and had already begun to partake of the realization of the resurrection from the dead. And they would have been helped in such an interpretation by some more false teaching that was gaining influence in their day. You see, not only had the Judaizers been teaching that circumcision and keeping the Mosaic ceremonies was necessary for salvation, the Judaizers were also teaching that by keeping those laws, one could come to a place of spiritual perfection in this life. And not only that, not only was it the Judaizers, but there was also a heretical sect that sought to mix pagan Gnosticism with Christianity. And these proto-Gnostics, we could call them, because Gnosticism wasn't really full-blown until a little bit later, but these proto-Gnostics, the beginnings of what were the Gnostic heresies, they would teach that there was also some ecstatic, mystical experience by which one could obtain a sort of secret knowledge of the divine, and that in that knowledge one attained spiritual perfection. And so against the teaching of the Judaizers who taught that perfection came through law-keeping, and against the teaching of the pagans who taught that perfection came through a mystical knowledge, and, and against anyone in the congregation that believed that Paul himself had somehow catapulted to, a, to spiritual perfection in his relationship with Christ— Paul writes, verses 12 to 16, to totally repudiate any form of Christian perfectionism. And he does so by picturing the Christian as a runner in an Olympic race. And in the race of the Christian life, perfect holiness, perfect fellowship and unhindered communion with Christ lies at the finish line. It's the goal of everything that we labor and strive for in this life. But while perfection is to be pursued with all our might, the complete eradication of sin awaits the day when, as chapter 3, verse 21 says, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So let's read our text this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So in this text, Paul provides us with five principles for running the race of the Christian life. Five principles by which we can order our lives so that we can run this race of sanctification that is set before us with the intensity and with the strategy that it takes to reach the finish line and win the prize. So let's look at that first principle. Number one, we must have a sober 
self-assessment, a sober self-assessment. Look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. You see, Paul is modeling for us a sober self-assessment. He says, I'm not perfect. I've still got a long way to go. I'm still pressing on. You say, Paul, you're a, you're a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. God has given you a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26. He's given you a new mind, Romans 12.2. You've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, Romans 6. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been justified before God. You've got Christ's righteousness imputed to you. You're even indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, yes, all true, but I'm not perfect. And I won't be perfect until I attain to the resurrection of the dead, verse 11. He says that, not that I have already obtained it, but obtained what? Move back to the resurrection of the dead or have already become perfect. You see how he relates those two. Becoming perfect will happen at the resurrection of the dead. So Paul has a a sober self-assessment. Someone says, well, this is just one man, right? He's just one guy stating that he personally has not achieved spiritual perfection. What has Paul's testimony got to do with me? Well, don't forget, my friend, that the entire section of Philippians chapter 3 that we're, we've been studying here, the entire section of, of Paul's autobiography is not written there for us simply so that we can get to know the apostle better as if his experience were to be interpreted as wholly unique. Not every detail of his story is normative. We're not going to have Christ knock us down in the middle of a, a road we're traveling. But the theology of his conversion and the theology of the Christian life that, that he's experienced is normative. He tells his own story at this point precisely because he wants to teach the Philippians about the nature of salvation, about the nature of the true Christian life. So this whole personal testimony from verses 4 all the way down to 14 is a statement of what is true for every believer. And besides that, if anyone would have achieved spiritual perfection, it was the Apostle Paul. This man was the most committed and spiritually mature Christian I think that ever lived. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He took the gospel of Christ throughout the entire Mediterranean world. And he endured the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He endured the beatings and the stonings and the imprisonments as they came as a result of his ministry. And after walking with the Lord in the most intimate kind of fellowship for 30 years, he can write this epistle and in no uncertain terms renounce any claim to perfectionism. And if that's the case, does anyone dare have the audacity to lay claim to greater spiritual attainment than the Apostle Paul. Paul even repeats this declaration. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on toward perfection. And then again in verse 13, Brethren, he says. Brethren, with that great term of endearment and familial affection, it's as if Paul places his hands on the shoulders of the Philippians and looks directly in their eyes and says, I really mean this now. I do not regard myself, verse 13, as having laid hold of it yet, but I press on. He has absolutely no desire to be misunderstood here. Perfection 
is to be pursued in this life, but it is never achieved in this life. John Wesley, as some of you may know, taught otherwise. Wesley taught that Christians could attain spiritual perfection in this life. He called this entire sanctification in which we could be, quote, so renewed in the image of our mind as to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, end quote. So that we really could, he says, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And that doctrine persists in some Wesleyan and Uh, Methodist churches today, that by some second work of grace after salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and catapults the believer to a place where they no longer struggle with sin. But our text deals the death blow to that kind of blasphemous error. After all his missionary labors, after 30 years of enjoying the kind of communion with Christ that has him superintended by the Holy Spirit to write inspired Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or already have already become perfect. Now, the danger of that sort of doctrine is apparent, isn't it? If a runner believes that he's already crossed the finish line, well, there's no reason at all to think that he'll continue to run the race. People who think they've, they've reached a state of sinless perfection will not give themselves to pursuing the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. They become complacent, content with their current level of holiness. They relax. They become indolent. And in trying to convince themselves that they've ceased from sinning, they deaden their conscience and they become desensitized to sin. And in a sad irony, the claim of perfection only catapults people further into sin because it does sear their conscience, and desensitize them to sin. Then they start plunging themselves into sin with greater readiness and without the check of conscience that keeps us from sin. But the godlier a person is, the greater their awareness and sensitivity to sin. Did you get that? The godlier a person is, the greater their awareness of and sensitivity to their sin. A godly person has a a greater ability to perceive that standard of God's holy law. And a godly person's conscience has been trained by the Word of God to know how desperately far his own character falls short of that standard. Do you know what the result of that is? That same godly person who is aware of and sensitive to their sin is the one who is most fully engaged in the battle against his sin. And that's what Paul says he's after. You know, we can become despondent as we grow in the Christian life, as we see what seems to be our sin just ever before us. And we can despair. Lord, I thought that I was growing. I'm spending time in Christianity. How come I'm sinning more? And the reality is you're probably not sinning more. You may be, and I don't want to deaden your conscience and inoculate you against that sort of self-examination. But it may be that in your maturity you see and perceive the standard of God's perfection with greater clarity, and in your maturity, you see how far short you fall of that standard. And that kind of despair is is the mourning over sin and the hungering and thirsting for righteousness that characterizes a true believer. So be encouraged if this morning you are 
downcast under this notion of, I, I wish that I could be making more progress. That's the right thought. If you didn't have that thought, you should be worried. But if we are going to have any hope of faithfully and successfully running the race of the Christian life, we need to develop a holy, a holy dissatisfaction with our present spiritual state. A holy dissatisfaction. We need to, by means of a sober self-assessment, we need to disclaim all thoughts of sinless perfection or of the thought that, hey, we've just matured enough. We need to be aware of and sensitive to our sin. We need to be painfully reckoning how far short we fall of God's standard because only then will we have a clear picture of the race that is set before us. And only then will we heed the second principle of running this race. Not only does running the race of the Christian life require a sober self-assessment, it also requires, number two, a sustained effort. A sustained effort. Look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. This phrase that's translated, I press on, is the Greek word dioko. It means to run after, to follow hard after. It describes a zealous pursuit, a strenuous attempt, an aggressive, energetic endeavor. It was used of hunters who were in active pursuit of their prey. In fact, this is the same word that was used in verse 6 of chapter 3. When Paul refers to his former manner of life in Judaism as a persecutor of the church. This is the word for persecuting people. And just as Paul had once followed hard after the followers of Jesus, just as he had once pursued them zealously, energetically, and aggressively seeking them out in every corner where he could find them, in the same way he is now following hard after holiness. He is zealously pursuing it strenuously straining for it, aggressively seeking it out in every corner of his life. Christian life, friends, is no passive endeavor. We've already quoted from Hebrews 12, 14 and noted that the Christian life is a pursuit. In 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul calls the Christian life a fight. He exhorts Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is a fight. This is something we are to take hold of, to seize. In the text that Warren read for us before, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul uses a similar metaphor to the one we have in our own text, and he compares sanctification to the contests of Isthmian games in Corinth, similar to the Olympic games in Athens. And he writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. And they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, implied how much more should we organize our lives and discipline ourselves? He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not just beating the air, but I discipline my body. The word is there, I buffet my body. I torture my body 
and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified. I want to win the prize. And of course, there's that text that we're all very familiar with as we've studied the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, on the basis of God's gracious work within us, he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Pursuit, fight, race, work out. And just like Paul repeated himself about not having attained perfection, he repeats himself about this diligent, sustained effort that he makes in sanctification. He's already said that he presses on to lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, one thing I do, I press on. Verse 14, I press on. See, we're to make every effort as we run this race of the Christian life, every effort. And not only does that put the lie to the perfectionists who say that there's no need to pursue holiness any further, it also strikes at the heart of that great error of antinomianism, which teaches that, well, holiness isn't necessary anyway. These are the people who say, listen, if we're saved by grace through faith alone, and if you're telling me that I can never attain perfection in this life anyway, well, why bother pursuing holiness at all? But I'm still going to heaven and I can't be perfect, why bother? Well, if that's your attitude, you may not be going to heaven. Remember last week that we said that we, we don't pursue holiness for holiness' sake, but because as we increase in holiness, we get to see and know and enjoy more of the treasure that is Christ himself. And I've never heard anybody having a treasure chest dropped in their backyard and going over to the chest and only stuffing a handful of gold coins in their pockets, saying, I don't want to take the whole treasure chest because I'm never going to be able to lift that whole thing anyway. If your attitude towards holiness is, why bother if I can't be perfect and if I'm already going to gain heaven anyway, maybe you've never been given eyes, new eyes, to properly value and evaluate the treasure as it is. Maybe it doesn't look as compelling to you as it is because you've not seen it with the eyes of faith. We bother because it's in the nature of our Christian life to bother. If we're alive, we've got to be growing. Peter tells us that newborn babies long for the nourishment that comes from the, their mother's milk. And he says the Christian who is alive longs for the pure milk of the Word of God, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2, 2. And so if we're going to run this race of the Christian life in a faithful, God-honoring way, if we're going to run so that we may win the prize, we not only need to have a sober self-assessment that teaches us that we've not yet arrived, we also need to make a sustained effort, the maximum effort in our pursuit of that prize. A third principle that Paul lays out for successfully running the race of the Christian life, number three, that we must have a solid foundation, a solid foundation. Look once more at verse 12. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. I want you to notice that all of Paul's sustained effort in vigorously pursuing Christ through increasing holiness 
all of his pressing on to apprehend the prize is grounded upon another prior apprehension. It's founded upon Christ's apprehension of Paul at his conversion on the Damascus Road. Paul says, before I ever thought about pressing on in hot pursuit of Christian holiness, Christ laid hold of me. And it's only because Christ laid hold of me and forgave me and saved me from my sin and justified me on the basis of his own righteousness that I can make any progress in sanctification. You see, friends, sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. Justification is the necessary prerequisite to sanctification. Put in the language of Philippians 2, 12, and 13, you can't work out your salvation with fear and trembling if you don't have a salvation to work out. If the Lord has never removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, if he's never breathed into your soul the divine life, if you've never truly repented of your sins and trusted Christ alone for your righteousness, dear friend, don't try to make any progress in the race of the Christian life. Receive the Christian life, first of all, by repentance and faith through Jesus Christ. And if you are a true believer in Christ, you need to recognize that your pursuit of holiness is grounded upon the solid foundation of your justification. And that reality needs to affect the way that you run this race. As a believer, covered in the righteousness of Christ, you run the race of sanctification not as one who's trying to earn God's favor, but as one who has already been given God's favor on the basis of Christ's work as a gift of grace. And that fact needs to fuel your fight against sin. We need to battle against sin, not as if we were just any other religious person with a strong conscience or or with with a weak conscience or somebody who has got a strong willpower. We need to battle against sin in the strength and in the freedom of that gospel-driven foundation that I can be victorious over sin in my life because Christ has already conquered sin in me by virtue of his work on the cross. But your justification also needs to affect your sanctification in another way. Look again at the text. Paul says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Paul's saying that Christ laid hold of him for a particular purpose. And whatever it is that Christ laid hold of Paul for, It's that thing that Paul presses on to lay hold of. See, Paul's goal in living was entirely consistent with Christ's goal in saving him. Paul derives his purpose for life from the purpose for which he's been saved. And what's that purpose? Why did Christ lay hold of him? Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What? What? For what reason? To become conformed to the image of his son. Conformity to Christ's likeness is God's aim in our justification. He justifies us to sanctify us. Titus 2.11 to 14 says the same thing. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see, justifying grace 
instructs us to live righteously, to live godly now in the present age. Paul goes on to say that in this passage that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. So you see that justification has as its aim not just the provision of a forensic righteousness by which we're forgiven, though it is that, but also the practical righteousness of sanctification. The reason why God saved you is to conform you to the image of His Son, to make you more and more holy throughout your Christian life. And so if this is the purpose of your salvation, if Christ laid hold of us in order to make us more like Himself, then we better order our entire lives according to that purpose. Do you know what you call a life that's not lived according to that purpose? A wasted life. Wasted. Don't waste your Christian life. The life that Christ died to give you fooling around with the passing pleasures of sin. Don't waste your life enslaved to the fleeting pleasures of sexual immorality. Don't waste your life enslaved to the false promises of drugs and alcohol that promise you relief and comfort and numbing, but never deliver, which is why you go back to them. Don't waste your life enslaved to the fear of man, when the fear of God is the fountain of all blessedness. Don't waste your life enslaved to pride and boasting and an overinflated view of self when God looks upon him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at his word. Live your life, friends, to the fullest of its potential. You were given your life for a purpose. Paul says, don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? This gracious foundation. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Oh, I love that. The law could never make you perfect. But grace can if you're standing on the solid foundation of your justification. So run the race on that solid foundation. There's a fourth principle for running the race of the Christian life in this text. And that is, number four, we must have a singular focus. We've seen a sober self-assessment a sustained effort, a solid foundation, and now a singular focus. Look with me at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. And the words I do don't even appear in the original language. The English translations, they, try, they add that to try to smooth out the flow of thought. But that tends to blunt the sharpness that Paul intends to communicate. This is a forceful interjection and it's extremely emphatic. Paul says literally one thing, one thing. He says, 
He had a singular focus. This highest priority of pursuing Christ's likeness with all his might captivates his full attention and demands total concentration. This isn't something that we do with five windows open on the computer screen. Yeah, yeah, and you're listening to somebody and you're saying, yep, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but you don't really know what they're saying. This is the full attention devoted to this highest priority, and that only makes sense. Have you ever seen a race where runners are running along just looking all over the place? Back behind him to see if his opponents are catching up, down at his feet to look at his form, out at the crowd to look at his fans cheering and looking for the signs? Of course not. If he's doing any of that, what happens? He starts to go off course. He starts running out of his lane. He starts deviating, and he even may falter. He may trip. Paul says the runner in the race of the Christian life has a singular focus, and that is the finish line. That is Christ himself. That's why the author of Hebrews calls us to lay aside every encumbrance, Every distraction is to be thrown aside, and we are to fix our eyes on Christ alone. Calvin says, as the runner requires to be free from entanglement and not stop his course on account of any impediment, but must continue his course, surmounting every obstacle, so we must take heed that we do not apply our mind or heart or anything that may divert the attention but must, on the contrary, make it our endeavor that free from every distraction, we may apply the whole bent of our mind exclusively to God's calling. The whole bent of our mind exclusively to this upward call of God for our sanctification. Friends, we must give ourselves to a singular devotion to this task of sanctification. We need to heed Solomon's words in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. He says, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Our world continues to invent more and more things to distract us from the business, this business of pursuing holiness. We've got them all. TV, movies, sports competitions, video games, computers, blogs, fantasy football, Facebook, Twitter, Candy Crush Saga. I don't know. I don't know about that one. It never ends. And all of those things can be fine, except for maybe Candy Crush Saga can be lawful, recreational activities. Some of them can even be good things. But not, dear friends, not if they distract you from your pursuit of God in Christ. Not if you're checking your Twitter feed before you're going to the Lord in prayer in the morning. Not if your hobbies, whatever they may be, crowd out your Bible reading. No, we need to have a singular focus. We need to have our pursuit of Christ must be the orienting principle of our entire lives. He must have the priority. He must be our singular focus. And when something has to go, it's not the devotional time. 
Paul tells us that this one thing, this pressing on to lay hold of Christ, is characterized by two activities. The first is forgetting what lies behind. We mentioned this. A runner doesn't look over his shoulder to see how much ground he's already covered or to see how far ahead of his competitors he is. And he, he doesn't turn around to admire how great of a jump he got off the blocks. Wow, that was really, I really enjoyed that jump I got off there. That was great. Did, I, did you see that? And if he got a bad jump, he doesn't turn around to lament that either. Say, oh, I wish I could have gotten a better jump off the blocks. The moment he does any of that, his concentration is broken and he starts to veer off course. Paul says the Christian runner in the race of sanctification, he does the same thing. He forgets what lies behind. He's not discouraged and incapacitated by past failures. And neither does he seek to live on the past successes of the good old days in his present performance. Now, how easy it is to fall into either one of those two traps. On the one hand, you have people who could never get over the guilt of their past failures. Sins they committed years earlier are paralyzing their growth in the present. How could God ever forgive that kind of sin? I've done, I just did it over and over again. And I mean, it would have been one thing if I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I've searched my heart. I believe I knew the Lord then and I was a believer when I did those things. I just know I have to live with the reality that I'm just a second-class Christian. I'll, I'll never be able to make progress in sanctification like those normal people. I bet you every one of us thought that at one point in, in time or another, which is just so funny because we think, oh, well, I'm not like the normal people. We all have that thought. When you have that thought, though, rather than looking to Christ and His righteousness as the ground of your acceptance, you are making too much of your own spiritual performance. And of course, you then despair of making any adequate progress in the race. You're looking to yourself. You're turned inward on yourself, and you need to be looking to Christ. But then on the other hand, you have those who look to some golden age in their spiritual experience to validate their present stagnation. They say, oh, you know, back when I first got saved, oh boy, you should have seen me. I devoured those scriptures, man. I was reading five chapters every day. I read through the Bible in six months. And you ask them, how many times have you read it since? Oh, uh, well, hey, you should have seen me back then. I, I mean, I really dug into the deep stuff and studied the Bible and, and study Bibles and commentaries and dictionaries, the whole bit. I even taught Bible studies. I used to evangelize all the time. Man, you couldn't shut me up. Anybody I was talking to, I was telling them about Christ. You say, who in your life currently are you praying for and making it a point to speak the gospel to now? The answer is the same. Oh, well, um, no, you should have seen me back then. You see, when you're trying to live your Christian life on the basis of past successes, you get complacent. You get content. You lose that holy dissatisfaction that we talked about before. You lose your grip on a sober self-assessment. But Paul says the Christian forgets what lies behind. And it's not that he, has, he doesn't have any thought to his past Christian life. It's not that he obliterates any notion that he has a past except for the, you know, the, the present moment. It's that any past remembrance that would detract from pressing forward, that he forgets, that he intentionally banishes from his mind. 
And then to put it positively, he also says he reaches forward to what lies ahead. This word that gets translated reaching forward is epektenomai in the Greek. That's an extremely vivid and emphatic word. You can hear it with the two prepositions, epektenomai. When you have a one preposition to put at the beginning of a verb, it's to intensify it. When you have two, it's to really intensify it. It's a word that describes stretching a muscle to its limit. And if minding what lies behind was pictured by a runner looking back over his shoulder, reaching forward to what lies ahead pictures the runner straining every nerve and every muscle as he keeps on running with all his might toward the goal, with his hand stretching out as if he's grabbing it right in front of it. You've seen those slow motion replays of a runner running the race and he's just reaching out and straining with everything he's got, trying to grab the finish line even though he knows it's 50 yards away. The dictionary translates this word to exert oneself to the uttermost. This is maximum effort. Friends, does it describe your life? Are you straining every muscle? That's what Paul calls for. We've seen that in order to run the race of the Christian life, we must have a sober self-assessment. We must be marked by a sustained effort in sanctification. We must be standing firm on a solid foundation. And we must be captivated by a singular focus. The fifth principle for successfully running the race of the Christian life is that we must have a steady gaze. A steady gaze. Look with me at verse 14. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that word goal there is the word skopos in the Greek. And it's where we derive the English word scope, periscope, telescope, microscope. It refers to a mark upon which we fix our gaze. For an archer, a skopos would be the bullseye, the center of the, the archery target. Like we've been seeing in our passage, for a runner, the skopos is the finish line. And that runner keeps looking at the finish line. He concentrates on that finish line. He disregards everything else but that finish line. And if at some point in the race he gets tired, if he gets a cramp or for whatever other reason he begins to feel like he can't make it, he raises his eyes to the finish line. And the sight of his goal so close within his reach causes him to bear down and give it everything he's got. In 1951, Florence Chadwick became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. One year after that, she set out to swim the 26 miles between the Catalina Island and the California mainland. And a few small boats surrounded her as she swam to, in order to watch out for sharks and also to come to her aid if she got hurt or if she grew tired and needed to be pulled up. And after about 15 hours, a thick fog set in off the Southern California coast as it often does. So thick that she could barely see the boats that were sailing right outside of her. But she continued on. And after about another hour, she began to cry out to the people in the boats to, to pull her up, take me out, I can't do it. And her mother, who was in one of the boats to encourage her, to cheer her on, called out to her and said, you're close, 
Don't give up. You, you can make it. But Florence was absolutely exhausted. She stopped swimming and was pulled into the boat. When she got on board, she found out that the shore was less than a half a mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Friends, if we would turn our eyes away from the vain things of this life, if we would lift our gaze from the fogginess of all the distractions of this life, we could see the shore. We could see the prize. We could see the Lord Jesus Christ himself there waiting for us and beckoning us and cheering us on to give it everything we've got. And if we could but see him, brothers and sisters, the sight of his glory would provide every ounce of strength and endurance that we could ever need or ever want to finish that race. Oh, if we only would look to him, if we'd only fix our gaze on him. This is why the Apostle Peter, when he exhorts the churches of the dispersion to greater holiness in 1 Peter 1.13, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, okay? Sanctification, holiness, we're going to do this. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. You want to make progress? You want to be prepared for action? Well, then fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you when Christ appears, when you'll see Him. That's why the author of the Hebrews writes, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, the sin which so easily clouds and fogs up our vision, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look it says, not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. Suffering produces glory for you while you look, not at the things which are seen, but which are unseen. And just a chapter earlier from that, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, in what is probably the most foundational statement in the New Testament on sanctification, Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It is beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed into that same image of that glory. We are sanctified, transformed as we behold, as we fix our gaze steadily upon Jesus. Friends, do you want that prize? Do you press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Say, so what's, what's the prize of the upward call? Well, the upward call of God is the divine calling for salvation. And the prize of salvation 
according to 2 Thessalonians 2.14, is that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, that's the prize of the upward call. In the Master's Seminary Library, there are various plaques on the walls with quotes from Pastor John. I imagine they're there to inspire and encourage the young men in their studies. And one plaque hangs on a wall at the bottom of the stairwell leading to the basement of the library, which is kind of the main room of the library and a place where I did much of my schoolwork for my first year in seminary. And so every day that I went to the library, I walked past that plaque. And the quote that was engraved upon it became eventually engraved upon my mind. Pastor John said, If you properly value the heavenly prize, it will compel you to give of yourselves and of your resources. Fervency springs from a vision of heaven's reward. Dear friends, look to the reward. Keep a steady gaze on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find that in that vision of him is all the strength necessary to run this race with endurance. And at that point, Paul turns from giving his personal testimony and he applies what he's been teaching to the Philippians. And he also applies it to us. Look at verse 15. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. You say, wait a minute, didn't he just finish telling us in no uncertain terms that nobody was perfect? Yes, but don't miss Paul's sarcastic wordplay there. He's speaking to the perfectionists. He's saying, you want to know who the perfect are? They're the ones who realize they're not perfect. That's brilliant. Let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude about the impossibility of perfection and the perennial need for the straining, exhaustive effort in the Christian life. But Paul doesn't only mean it to be a sarcastic dig at the false teachers. He also means it to, to be a sincere call to the people of God, a sincere call to you to embrace mature thinking. The Greek word teleos is also used throughout the New Testament to describe not only perfection, but there's this also sense of spiritual maturity. And the, maybe the most famous instance of that is in Colossians 1.28, where Paul says, we proclaim him, teaching every man, admonishing every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete, teleos, mature in Christ. So it's both Perfection, but in this sense, and he uses it in the sense of perfection in verse 12, and then as a wordplay, uses it in the sense of mature in verse 15. Do you want to be mature? You need to think this way. Would you consider yourself a mature Christian, Paul says? Well, then you need to recognize that those who are mature think this way about sanctification and about the Christian life. Do you have a sober self-assessment? Do you disclaim all notions of perfectionism? And take a realistic view of your spiritual progress? Do you forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, pursuing holiness with a sustained effort? Do you see the necessity of diligence and devotion and intentional activity in the pursuit of holiness? Do you shun both the errors of quietism and apathy, of passivity and just I don't care, why bother? Are you running 
on the solid foundation of your justification, living your Christian life according to the purpose for which it has been given to you to become more like Christ? Do you keep a singular focus, eliminating all distractions, keeping the pursuit of Christ the main priority in your life? And do you keep a steady gaze to the prize of gaining his glory? Can you see the shore? Are you looking to the reward? Paul was a realist. And like any reasonable pastor, he knew that not everyone was going to agree with him. And I'm under no illusions either. While there may not be too many of you who would be so bold as to claim that you've, you've become perfect, there are too many of you, even if it's just one of you, who have become complacent in your fight for holiness. There are too many of you who think, oh, you know, I'm doing all right. You know, listen, I made some good progress. You should have seen me three years ago. Man, I was messed up then. Uh, you should, I'm, I'm okay where I'm at. I don't need to press on. I'll take a break, take a breather, finish the race later. And you may not say that outright, but that's the attitude that you've taken. You've become lax in your spiritual growth. You've grown content in that apathy. And Paul says, verse 15, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. I've said all I can say. I've done my best to lead you to the truth of God's word. And at this point, all I can do, Philippians, is pray to the Lord that God will make these things plain to you in his own dealings with you. You say, how does he do that? In different ways with different people. With some, he will be so gracious to simply illuminate his word as you continue to study it, if you continue to study it. With others, it'll be through the faithful influence of a godly brother or sister who's seeking to speak the truth into your life. But perhaps the most common form of God's correction comes through divine chastening, through discipline, where he brings you through some sort of trial or tribulation to wake you up from your slumber and to drive you back to him and his word. But no matter what happens, verse 16, whatever the case may be, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. If you really are one of those who can properly be called mature, keep making progress in your pursuit of holiness. You say, how do I do that? By continuing in step with that same rule of life. And what is that rule of life? It's the apostolic teaching and the apostolic example that we have now codified for us in the sufficient scriptures. Press on. Reach forward. Keep running. All according to the word of God. Lay hold of the prize, friends. Lay hold of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would seal this word to our hearts. Make it the practice of our lives. Forgive us for our sin in the ways that we don't practice it. Grant us the spirit without measure in order to conform us to the holiness of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.